was gonna say, I know, I was gonna say, well, we basically put the multiple dogs, which are like little heaters, but you have multiple cats too. Yeah, so. and it depends. Like the cats have their own little habits of like, yes, we sleep with you, but it lasts for like two weeks. You're like, all right, we've had enough of this. But the other issue is because Aaron has that like weird restless thing, they more often sleep on me because mm. I'm the one that holds still. Yeah, they sleep by Loretta, same. Um, but Sugarfoot tries to creep up next to my head and I'll be like, I'll have this like hot, hot object at the back of my neck or something. And I'm just oh like, God. Jesus, I'm sweating. And I'm like, oh, there's a chihuahua over here heating me up. Is the is Sugarfoot the one with the really awful breath and bad teeth? Or is that that is, that is all chihuahuas. <laughs> that is all chihuahuas. They oh. have all small dogs get funky funky mouths but uh tiberius is our um komodo komodo dragon his breath and teeth are so bad you do not want him to lick you or your hand will melt off so yesterday i had to take all three cats to the vet for their annual checkup and it's so it's literal herding of cats to mm. get everyone into carriers and to the vet and for the most part they were good but hecate the the younger one She'll normally do this thing where once we get into the vet, she has to be on me and she'll start purring, but she'll intermittently growl while purring. It's the most hilarious thing mm. I've ever heard. Like, love me, love me. Oh my God, I'm going to destroy you. Love me. Mm -hmm. It's really cute. Yeah. It's really cute. I'm anyway. Oh, anyway. we're not here to talk about our animals. We aren't. We totally should, though. We should just do an episode about our animals. But also, this is my first episode back. I know, I know. Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. Welcome back to your show, The Sausage of Science. My show. Our show. Our show. Our, our show. show. Yeah. Huge shout out and thank you to Dr. Malika Sarma for, for filling in for me the entire semester. This is a labor of love, but labor is involved in all of us do significant amounts so so much but another thing we love is our guest today friends. <laughs> Ooh, yeah she's our good friend that we uh always have a fun time chatting to so do you want to introduce her or do you want me to so dr sage kelmelis is a biological anthropologist who specializes in bioarchaeology paleodemography paleoepidemiology and forensic anthropology uh, her research involves human skeletal and dental remains. We're going to talk to her about uh, these things today. Life, health, disease, identity, and demography is found in uh, in remains. Uh, she integrates methods and theory in osteology, paleodemography, lots of stuff like hazard analyses. We're going to ask her about some of these are words I don't know. I'm not a bioarchaeologist. Yeah, demography also. stuff often just goes right over my head. Well, what I really like, and, and I'm... For those of you listen, I'm reading a little bit, but I'm also sort of like we bring folks like this on because even though it's biological anthropology, it's outside of our skill set. Mm -hmm. And what's so cool about this article and the and and Sage and what in having her send these articles and and reading her bio, like we've been friends with her longer than I've really known what she does. And then she yeah. sends us these articles, and I realize she does very similar work to one of our very, very first interviewees, which was Sharon DeWitt. And in fact, she co-authored an article with Sharon mm -hmm. DeWitt here and is doing some very similar work on, on Black Death. And I'm actually, my knowledge of demography and all this stuff is from when Sharon was my professor in grad school. So yeah, yeah. it all kind of comes back together. So that's, I mean, I know we're through you, but we're actually working yeah. on a project together that we'll talk about probably so toward the I end of take... today. 
I get to take credit for you two becoming friends, right? You literally introduced us, and I can picture it now sitting there in the hotel in Denver, like in front the of the Denver fireplace one. or yes. the coffee bar or something. And oh. uh, yeah, you introduced us. Yeah, so Sage is one of those people who I met online before ever meeting in person uh, because she emailed me out of the blue to thank me and ask questions about the different teaching materials that I post to my professional website. And it kind of kicked off from, from there. And I've had a few friendships develop because of that. So folks, putting your stuff up online is a great way to meet people and to make life and jobs easier for everyone. And we're going to ask her a question about that because she's not the yeah. first person we probably either one of us have met that way. And we've, mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about how the internet has helped us extend our professional social network. So we want to share some of that wisdom with y'all. But poor Sage has been hanging out in the waiting room for 10 minutes oh, while we no! talk about dogs. So oh, well, let's oh. let's let her in. Dogs and catching cats. up and cats. cats purr and growling and back pain. <laughs> my dog, speaking of which, has, this is Gallifrey, as, like, I'm an old man, so I have hair grown out of my ears, right? Yeah. Since dogs already have hair grown out of their ears, apparently what happens when they get old is hair grows out between their pads on their paws. And Wait, so it doesn't what, do that anyway? I thought it did anyway. It grows like out. Like, it's always been there. Front. It's always been there, but it gets longer. Oh, so, so it's, it's like the long... ear and nose hair. Okay. That's what I'm saying, exactly. Yeah. And now he's sliding around because the hair on his paws. Oh, he slides on the floor. On the floor. <laughs> and then when I try to cut his hair, he's like, ow, 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 ow. I'm like, dude, Sage. man, try to help you. What's up, Sage? Welcome to what is like the epitome of the beginning of Sausage of Science of Chris and I talking about absolute random shit. That's amazing. And for what it for what it's worth, I was gonna say, yeah, my husband barks at me too when I try to cut his hair. I get it. (laughs) Does it it grow between his fingers like it grows between Chris's dog's paws? Not yet. Not yet. We can only hope. So as everyone who is listening can tell, we are friends with Sage because she just Uh hopped right into the madness. Uh, I, I feel like like other guests are like what is going on you people are insane which i mean they have a point they definitely do uh but sage we got a couple of things that we'd like to start off with first thank you for joining us to be our first episode of this what is it fifth or sixth season chris we don't even know anymore oh our, our I, end I, season <laughs> i think it's our sixth season we started so. in 2017 yeah but this is the start of my fifth year at Notre Dame. I got to actually count on Albany. my fingers for the listeners. I'm counting on my fingers. 27, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Six years. This is our sixth season. Wow. You are our first guest of the sixth season. And this is also my first episode back from being on leave. And so, so happy to have you here. So thank you for no, taking the time. thank you so much. This is so wonderful to be invited. I know that both of you have uh, said to me uh, a couple of times, like, oh, I invite you on the podcast. So um, I'm glad that we can make it happen. And to be the first guest for this season, I feel, okay, there's a lot of pressure. Okay. All the pressure. We're going to ask the hardest questions possible. Exactly. Like, what is, what's the fifth word on page three of that article that came out in 2017? Go. Listen, if you think I'm not prepared for that, I have all my publications up on one screen. That's hilarious. But we, we have these discussions before, like, once a paper is published, like, I forget the title. Like, I don't know the names of 90% of my publications at this point. <laughs> It's all gone. Anyway, anyway, 
as I'm sure you know, we start off the show with the same question with every single person, every single time. And that's to learn a little bit about you and your journey of how you became an anthropologist and why you decided to pursue it as a career. So tell us your origin story, Sage. Okay, so my origin story is probably a little bit unlike um, other people's origin stories, or maybe it's oddly familiar, I don't know. I decided to be a bioarchaeologist when I was five. Um, <laughs> I, this is the longest committed relationship I've ever had, and I'm a serial monogamous. So uh, my maternal grandfather uh, was a medic in World War II, and um, as a medic, had used anatomical specimens, um, and um, in his study, uh, for uh, as a medic and having um, had them as part of his personal collection. And so when I was a child, exploring his personal study, which looks a lot like the ones that you would see from like 1990s movies where you go into a study and there's artifacts and National Geographics and stained glass windows and those old green lamps, like you get the very cozy feel. He happened to have an anatomical specimen that he had gotten from being a student at Yale. And um, I became eerily fascinated with it, and he kind of stoked that fascination with you know, getting these subscriptions to National Geographic and watching, um, this is embarrassing, Leonard Nimoy's Ancient Mysteries from back in the day. <laughs> um, big crush on Leonard Nimoy, not ashamed of that at all. Um, and so it was uh, mostly that kind of early exposure as a kid. Um, because I'm mean, very interested in anthropology, but more specifically in understanding how do people who have died give us a good idea about their lives. So I, even though I study dead people, I'm very interested in life. And so that origin story comes from being a five-year-old who was overly ambitious and overly committed. Um, I went to undergraduate at uh, Franklin Pierce University, which is a small, private, liberal arts university in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. Um, and, Wait, there's uh, a university named after I know. <laughs> a president that almost no one knows anything about? I cannot yeah. wait to tell my son, who is super into presidents, and wrote recently a screenplay with kids going to high school at like Millard Fillmore or something like some president that no one's ever actually gives in a shit about is in a screenplay. So sorry, sidebar. No, no worries. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of a weird. It's listen. I'm not going to unpack about Franklin Pierce as a president. I think you know Wikipedia can do that for us. Thank you, Wikipedia. But you know irrespective of the that former president's career, the school was good for me. Um, and so they had a small intimate anthropology department and my advisor, Dr. Bob Goodby, who is still a good friend of mine and mentor, really helped me out um, as an undergraduate student because he he's a classically trained archaeologist and he saw me, the little Hermione Granger, as a student <laughs> who was way more interested in bones and in disease and forensics and weird stuff like that and thought, you know what? I can't necessarily give her a research program, but what I can do is get her to work with people that I know. So I worked with Dr. Nick Bellantoni, the former archaeologist in Connecticut at UConn, and we developed a honors thesis where I inventoried and helped repatriate human remains. And then from then, I, I went to BU Medical um, to the Forensic Anthropology program, where I discovered very quickly I'm not interested in people with uh, squishy bits. Um, <laughs> I'm much more interested. Well, then you really just shouldn't be on this podcast because we've all, right. all got squishy bits, Sage. <laughs> Listen, I won't judge you for your squishy bits. I don't judge that. <laughs> but I want to see your bones. Anyway, um, so um, I worked with uh, Dr. John Bethard, who was at BU and now uh, he's in Florida, who was a, also a great mentor to me. Um, and we figured out that I would have a really 
great time going to Denmark to study uh, medieval uh, diseases, specifically uh, medieval leprosy or Hansen's disease, working with Dr. Jesper Boltzen and others at the University of Southern Denmark. And so after that period, which was really awesome and very formative for me, um, I also ended up meeting the love of my life uh, while I lived in Boston. I'm from Massachusetts to begin with anyway, so that was pretty easy. Um, it's a small state. <laughs> um, but after that, I went to Penn State to work with Jim Wood, uh, George Milner, um, and others to develop my dissertation, which brought me back to Denmark to study different diseases and mortality risks throughout the medieval period, which was a major demographic and to some extent epidemiological shift for medieval Danish people because they were transitioning from a relatively rural kind of environment to one that had increased urbanization, the introduction of Christianity, um, of course, the Black Death and other kinds of major diseases that were going around, including leprosy, tuberculosis, potentially uh, syphilis and other um, infectious maladies, plus famines and everything sucked. The medieval age, everything sucked, but I like it. And so that was my dissertation. Um, and now I'm at the University of uh, South Dakota teaching kids about diseases and how not to get them. So like neither Kara or I do any of that, right? But we're all close friends and, and collaborators. And it's almost like we brought you on here to say uh, we're coming full circle because when we started in season one, we interviewed Sharon DeWitt, right? And this is how we learn about demography and uh, bioarchaeology is by bringing folks on with that expertise. But in fact, that's not why we brought you on. We brought you on because we work with you. So let's talk about for our listeners, like the value of professional networking. How did we all meet? How did we end up becoming, we're collaborating and not on bioarchaeology or demography. And you you uh, and Kara work together a lot. So <laughs> tell us our origin story, Sage, of how we met. Oh, man. Um, so I've been a big fan of yours. <laughs> See, I'm having her tell the story just to boost my ego. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge fangirl. Oh my god. Um, yeah. So um, when I when I came to uh, USD, um, I started teaching uh, Intro to BioAmp, um, which I had done before already at Penn State um, as a graduate student, um, but realized very quickly the kind of model I had been using for lecture and exams was really not working at all, um, not conducive to, to teaching um, many, many students. And I, and I really didn't want to do that anymore. And so I stumbled across Kara's work and everything that she's done with teaching pedagogy. And I thought, that's the person to know. And I kind of sleuthed on her website, which is perfectly organized, but thought, you know what, I, I actually want to know this person. And I am completely unafraid of cold emailing people. I'm afraid of having a social media account, but I'm totally not afraid of emailing total strangers and being like, hey, you're cool. There's so I little risk in that. <laughs> I mean, at, at worst, they just ignore you. Right. No, I think it's But good. at best, you develop friendship and collaboration. So like everyone listening, cold emails are a good thing to do. And, and you don't have to be on social media to make these connections. So yeah. I, I think that's a good lesson. So... Yeah, I mean, in, and in my case, and I won't get into the weeds about it, but I had stopped having active social media accounts for some years because of personal uh, mental health choices and safety choices. And yeah. so I know that for some people out there, if you are concerned about that, you can do it. Um, I do suffer from incredible FOMO, however, I will point that out. Um, but that doesn't get in the way of networking. And so if you are, are keen on researching people and if you're up on your literature, 
And if you have a semblance of social skills, even if they're clumsy at first, guess what? We're all weirdos. We're all weirdos yeah. and we all suffer from some kind of underlying social issue. Um, and mine happens to be anxiety, but I also want to know people better. And so for me, it was like, you know, just just email her. What is, what is she going to do? Tell me I'm a loser. Well, if she does, then I don't want to know her anyway. Right. But that's not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> it all worked out. And, and, and this so, was in the pandemic, too, I believe. Yeah. We're like everything was online and and yeah it just became that became connections for so many of us was to just email and reach out so had virtually. you just met had you guys just met in person right before you introduced sage to me or had you met oh yeah denver meeting? was the first time we met oh, yeah, in person yeah. yeah i uh got in early to the hbas and, and and found her and um it was just like this mm-hmm. moment and which is i think we've all had those right especially during the pandemic and you were like, I've got to introduce you to Chris. And, and that kind of happens beautifully. And um, it's kind of getting into our discussion about how I really met you, Chris, prior to um, us starting our collaboration. Um, I'm a tattooed person. I, ta- I collect tattoos. Um, I'm collecting more of them. So this is my newest one. You can't see it. Nice. Listeners, but I've got a nice little owl tattoo. It's a beautiful owl. owl for listeners. And this is the first time I have seen it also. So thank you. Yeah. He's brand new. Looking I always good. think of your pumpkin tattoo. Anytime my... I think of you and tattoos, it's the pumpkin tattoo. I got a new one too. Did I show you? Oh my oh, goodness. Nice. I am the only one without new ink and probably won't, given how bad I get the, the tattoo flu. Which is, oh, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, speaking Which of the tattoo flu. beautifully into. <laughs> yeah, I, I love my strutty pumpkin tattoo. You can you can show p- people pictures of that all day long. Um, it's no, so a strutty anyway. pumpkin. I like that. It, for for the sake of the listeners and families at home, it is called a stretchy pumpkin. It's a little pumpkin with really long high heels. Um, There's no other name legs. for it. It's only like strutty super pumpkin. long legs. Strutty yeah. pumpkin. So so anyway, so um, as a tattoo collector, I've been uh, going to um, some artists in my in my area in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I got this relatively large piece. Um, so I think the the first sitting was about six hours. Um, I usually sit somewhere between six and eight hours per session. And I, this was also again during the pandemic. So I was done with my first session and I drove home. And when I got home, I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. Like I felt achy and tired and kind of fluey. And I buried myself under comforters and started to get a little concerned because I'm like, oh crap, I've got, I've got the COVID. And my partner, who by the way is not an anthropologist, but um, who is a very smart and well-informed IT person, found me and said, no, you don't have COVID. You just have something called tattoo flu. I said, what the heck is that? And he felt pretty smug in that moment. Um, (laughs) I tried to do a a bit of some research on it. And there's not a lot of peer reviewed medical or certainly not anthropological research on it, although people have been studying tattoos. um, And of course, immunity, like Chris, that's all your work um, and health for some time, but not this kind of acute possibly inflammatory or immune kind of kind of thing. And so I'd gone back to the shop, chatted with some of the artists, and they were uh, curious if we could do some research on it. And it just so happened I was going to Denver for the HBAs and the AABAs. And so I sat down with Chris and then with um, Eric Shattuck, and we, we now are doing this fun collaborative project with our students um, and tattoo artists trying to figure this out. Well, and funny- Eric is another friend of the pod, too, that we've had on and had good yeah. times with. And the funny thing was, is I remember we were standing there and we were brainstorming on how to do it. Uh, how, how, and I was like, sure, we, if all we need is a tattoo artist who's willing to let us collect the data. And you were like, 
I have one. And then we're like, okay, then we just need a questionnaire. And if we're talking about, and I had just literally been talking to Eric about the sickness questionnaire he uses and was finally wrapping my brain around what he means by sickness behavior literally seconds before. And then I just grabbed him, pulled him over and went like, let's think about your sickness questionnaire in the context of tattoo. I don't think he had any idea what we were talking about or that we had just come up with the idea seconds before. But like, that's yeah. how, like when people hear about academics at conference and back of the napkin type of stuff, like mm -hmm. that's what it looks like. And, and that's the kind of thing that can't happen like with online conferences. And that's why I think still having in-person ones is is so important. Okay, so to one benefit to the, the online, um, I first met Eric through uh, the online mm. um, um, ABA, and, and that's kind of like why at some point in our in-person meeting, I was doing the really uncomfortable, like, staring You're like things. this. You're like, oh my God, look oh, how yeah. big he I'm is. Like, Wait a minute. I've seen your face, not the rest of you, but I've seen your face. <laughs> Who the hell are you? And I went, oh, God, we did the thing together because we were, we were part of um, a meet and greet. Mm. Uh, during during the happy hour and and so we had kind of connected that way and i thought well this is a really cool guy and and so it's really serendipitous that this all worked out i mean i'm super thrilled by it so yeah absolutely definitely don't be afraid to just walk up to people and, and stuff and and honestly actually i, I tell my students this because i do a lot of mentoring one thing you might want to be aware of is you know there are definitely people who go to these meetings who are like big names in the discipline who have people coming up to them all the time and they may not have the time for you in that moment, that doesn't mean that you should take that personally. And yeah. maybe start talking to people who are early career and mid-career because they have more time for you and they might be more willing to work with you, which isn't to say that senior people aren't. It's just that they are also overly inundated with a lot of people. And so don't get discouraged. Just keep trying. That's amazing advice. Yeah, uh, we're, we're grateful. And, and I just want to put a pin in that and say, like, we're all, you know, you can do other types of research outside of your main discipline once you sort of get over the hump of like your dissertation and things and get a job and then you get to be a broad anthropologist which is what i love about our work together so because oh, so yeah. much of yeah just getting our phd is learning how to learn uh much more efficiently than we ever did as undergraduates and so yeah you get to broaden out a whole lot more Oh, yeah. And, and by no means should you take make, your dissertation is not your destiny. Right. Yeah. So like my work with 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 Chris and Eric is such a far departure from what I normally do. It's it's still related to disease and health, which is kind mm -hmm. of my main playing ground. But now I'm also doing things in Belize and in Bangladesh that deal with cementum and life history analyses, which is also wildly different than what I normally do. And so just because I started in the medieval period in Scandinavia doesn't mean that's where I'm staying. Um, and that's that's OK. So, yeah. Let's take a brief tour back to your roots of the kinds of things that you started with. Uh, so you sent us two recent papers, and one is with Sharon DeWitt, as we mentioned, a, a good friend of the pod, uh, and she's been on a couple of times. Uh, tell us about the collaboration you've had with Sharon and your work on the Black Death. So my collaboration with Sharon also comes from me having no boundaries. Okay, so Sharon and I share a, a lineage through Penn State. So Jim Wood um, was our advisor, and we both worked on medieval data sets, including some of the similar overlapping work um, in Denmark. And so we, we both have similar interests. And so her work was very much an inspiration for my own. I really met Sharon, actually, um, again, in some social circumstances where my partner and I were taking a road trip from State College, Pennsylvania, down to Key West, Florida. And um, I asked her if I could stay at her house. <laughs> So I had a sleepover at Sharon DeWitt's house, um, and that's when I really got to get to know her a little bit more and 
she's just such a bright, wonderful human being, and I love spending time with her. And so uh, this particular paper was me getting in touch with Sharon and saying, hey, look, we, we both have data from Denmark, and I really love the work that you've done. Uh, comparing mortality experiences before, during, and after the Black Death in medieval London and that of, of you and, and your other colleagues like um, Samantha Yassi and others. Um, I'd really love to see if we can do something like that in Denmark because um, it seems to me that, you know, we might have some similarities, but I wondered if like local conditions might be different. And this is a question that she had too, um, because in one of her papers, she had mentioned that there um, there are some comparative um, analyses um, in other places in medieval Europe that suggest um, different patterns, but that the approaches they were taking were different. So I was curious what this would look like. And so it was a really easy collaboration and it's just so easy to work with her. Um, and so we were able to pull it together fairly quickly while I was also planning my wedding. Uh, <laughs> And um, so that's kind of the, the inspiration behind that paper. Both papers have really nice graphics, which is helpful for those of us who don't understand the words in the paper, not all of them. So I'm gonna ask you uh, to, to explain a few of them. It's a, it's a nice, we'll say Kaplan-Meyer survival curve. I have no idea what Kaplan-Meyer means, but I understood the survival part. Uh, and across a lifespan for pre, during and post black death, and what it looks like is there's a significant jump in survivorship for all ages. That's what it looks like, uh, but particularly for those under 20 and over 30. And so one, I'm wondering if I'm reading that right at all. And then two, I wonder if you could sort of unpack some of those terms for, for listeners. Don't have to go into the nitty gritty, but like what's a Kaplan-Meyer analysis just sort of briefly? So a Kaplan-Meyer survival analysis, um, we see these a lot in medical studies and in demographic studies, at least for living people, they're used to estimate the probability or the likelihood that a patient or a participant in the study will survive. Big air quotes, you can't see me doing this, um, but basically make it to the end of the study period in the study until some predicting time event or certain variables. So a nice example of that would be, so if we're measuring the proportions of patients um, living after starting a certain medication for cancer, so when do we expect them to drop out of the study how many of them will survive to the end. For the kind of work that I do in paleodemography, um, we can use them, um, but they're used a little bit differently because everyone's dead. That's the problem with paleodemographic research is that everyone's dead, so no one's surviving. So what we're basically doing is using the age of death distributions that we've created from estimating age of death from skeletal indicators on each skeleton, which can vary depending on the age, so how we estimate age for non-adults, that's the term that I use for talking about people who are below adult ages, um, typically about 15, depending, um, and those who are into the adult threshold. And so what we can do with the Kaplan-Meier model, which measures that survivorship, or again, that probability that an individual will survive to a certain age in this case, we're basically just comparing those mortality curves because everyone's dead. So we're not concerned about them surviving a certain event because that event has already happened. Um, and so we use that to compare curves of people who have been binned into pre-Black Death mortality during the Black Death and also uh, preceding famine event mortality and then after the fact. And, and how we figured out where people were in, in that chronological space or that temporal space rather was based on something called arm burial position in the grave. So radiocarbon dating isn't really a good option for uh, medieval Danish burials because of complicating chemical factors. 
Um, I, I don't do radiocarbon dating, so I can't speak to the specifics of that. Apologies across the board for that. But what we can do is look at where people were buried with their arms relative to the rest of their body as a way of creating sort of a seriation effect of when people died. Because over time, medieval Danish people changed how people were buried. So medieval Christians generally bury Christians in the same way. Early people, so pre-Black Death, had their arms buried by their waists, so you know, straight down, um, and then gradually moving to crossed over, over the stomach and then the chest. And so that gave us a sense of approximately when someone died, so we could create um, those categories. You know, um, again, unlike medical applications, so those living people examples, the results from the analyses that we created were used to compare those mortality distributions. And one last thing I'll mention, <clears throat> excuse me, about the Kaplan-Meier test and other kinds of non-parametric models like it, what these kinds of models don't do that other mortality models do, like the Seiler model, is it doesn't make any underlying baseline mortality hazard assumptions. Um, so basically, we're not going to make any assumptions about that hazard, about age-specific mortality. So we're not going to have any underlying parameters about infant mortality versus, say, adult mortality. Um, so it allows the data to speak for themselves in that way. They're okay. They're pretty good models. They're, they're not the worst. Um, they're rather unspecific, and they're pretty flexible for that. Um, we can, and, and Sharon has done this, and I did this in my dissertation, but we can use better models. So those that we would call fully parametric models that are more informed about human mortality patterns in, in real life. So the fact that we have high infant mortality, at least initially, that decreases, and then we have this sort of constant uh, mortality experience among adults that will increase with senescence. So it's that kind of telltale bathtub curve of human mortality with some local fluctuations. So that would be a better way to do it. This That doesn't mean that this is bad. It's just, um, it does mean that it's a more simplistic way of comparing mortality experience. So you you saw some differences in, in the pre-Black death, mid-Black death, post-Black death. Could you kind of talk us through briefly why those differences occur and what they were? Sure, okay. So uh, kind of the too long didn't read version of this is that we, we do see across the board. So by the way, we're comparing urban versus say rural settlements because that was a big question I had too um, in my dissertation but also um, that we had in this paper, which was, you know, does urbanization or does living in urban environments have a deleterious effect towards your ability to survive or your survivorship? Um, because the literature has been kind of curious about that. Um, you know, Sharon and I were also um, authors on the Bioarchaeology of Urbanization book that came out uh, through Springer a couple of years ago that does a really good job of covering various case studies about this question. So we found um, that across the board, there's this generalized pattern where uh, survivorship, when we pool all of our samples, was it was low, so it, it so it was you know mortality risks were higher during the pre-Black Death period, but then the uh, survivorship was better, so people had a higher chance of living to older ages in the post-Black Death period, and that was true across the board, irrespective of whether they lived in urban or rural environments and also age. So everybody was doing better after the Black Death. Um, that's the big conclusion, and it's that's great. That's great. Everyone to see who because didn't die, right? Everyone who didn't die, but even if you did die, you're probably doing better. You're probably you. doing better. You don't have to go on the cart. Yeah, Monty Python reference. I know. 
Um, so, but, but that's actually, it was, that was encouraging because that um, was uh, replicating the results that uh, she and her colleagues had gotten from her work in, in medieval England. And so that was pretty interesting. But the difference between medieval England, especially London versus say Denmark, is that Denmark is much less urbanized and much less populated than say most of the uh, site settlements that Sharon had been dealing with. And so one thing that we kind of noticed and I considered a caveat in the paper was that you know, the differences that we're seeing are not as significant as they would be in an urbanized space. And so it's important to consider that um, even those early cities and even those more developed cities in Denmark were still comparatively rural compared to say medieval London. And so that to me was an important observation to think about. And in terms of what was going on with the pre-Black Death period, because that mortality was pretty similar to that of during the Black Death, uh, we had to contextualize that within the, basically the history of, of Denmark and what we could gather from that, which is that they did experience some hardship from those pre-Black Death years. And so Sharon's work showed pretty strongly that the 1315 to 1317 uh, Great Famine years, which also had implications from the Little Ice Age and for your rainy season and all that, really disadvantaged people in terms of their health. So things like malnutrition, overcrowding, reoccurring epidemics, it, things were not good. So people's um, frailty might have been increased and therefore leading to more excess mortality, more selectivity during the Black Death. And so what our results they've indicated is that at least some measure, there are some similar um, results happening here. Now, I don't have, we didn't explore data on actual skeletal evidence of frailty. That's something that we're planning on doing following up, assuming that I can get myself together and do it. But what we did see from um, archival information and from historical data is that Denmark did have some, some difficulty with some of those famine years, maybe not to the same extent because there, there is disagreement. Um, among historians about that. But nevertheless, the other big result is that everyone seemed to do better after the Black Death. And so there was good historical evidence of there being some at least temporary recovery, um, including things like economic opportunities for, for tenant farming, um, increased fertility, at least temporarily. Uh, the Black Death did revisit, or at least rather Yersinia Pestis revisited um, up until um, I think the 19th century. And so there were still problems, but there was at least a temporary improvement in health and opportunities to bounce back from that. We also noticed some nuanced differences between urban and rural individuals during the pre-Black Death period. So those individuals who were living in urban environments versus say rural who were adults were doing differently. So urban adults uh, before the Black Death had a worse time versus say rural farming adults. So maybe the city isn't so great for your health um, if you were living before the Black Death. But conversely, children who were living in uh, rural environments, so country kids, um, may have had more hazards to deal with before they could survive them and become adults. And so there does seem to be some age-specific differences uh, leading, you know, lending to frailty before the Black Death. Sounds like you're suggesting, although you didn't, I didn't really take this away in the paper, but listening to you, it sounds sort of like you're hinting at a potential evolutionary selection that took place. Frailty was selected out, and maybe it's not just that there's fewer, there's less competition afterward, but that there may be more robust. The stronger kids survive. And so, whereas in the city, the weaker kids get to continue on to adulthood and then might be more frail in adulthood? 
Well, so keep in mind, everyone's dead. Um, <laughs> so, so nobody's doing well. Um, dead people so, can evolve, right? You're the evolutionary biologist, not me. Um, but uh, let me, yeah, let me break into that a little bit. So keep in mind uh, when I'm talking about um, adults versus you know, adults, kids versus adults, what we're looking at ultimately in the survival curve, especially when we're comparing uh, children, are that those children died. What we're effectively seeing are the patterns of dead kids. And so when kids are dying, which, you know, if a kid dies and doesn't reach adulthood, that ultimately means this is how I interpret these things, because I am a, a brainchild of the osteological paradox, um, meaning I can't interpret these things in a straightforward manner, that, you know, when children die, that is a pretty good sign of frailty. So if we're seeing children who are surviving longer after the Black Death, even if it's albeit by a couple of years, that's a pretty good sign that conditions are better for health. And, and infant mortality, child mortality is a really good measure of community health anyway. We know this is true in medical anthropology and among living people. And so when we're looking at some of the results from the pre-Black Death period, you know, rural children, by the way, are either of you from farming at all? I come from a one square mile village. My grandmother's a farmer. Summer's on a tobacco farm. My grandmother, by the time I grew up, she was no longer farming herself, but it was used to cultivate tobacco. So I grew up on that. I also come from a village. <laughs> my, my village of Tolland is 400 people. <laughs> so, so you know that kids are free labor. Central part of biodemography. Kids are free labor. And, and so, but you know, being a, a child of farming is hard. And, and so it could be possibly that being a, a rural kid meant that you you had some some difficulties to face and if you survived to adulthood you were more robust perhaps the other way around for urban individuals but then again you know i really should point out the limitation of the study which is that actually with any bioarchaeological study any paleodemographic study is that our sample sizes are limited and the representation of age specific mortality is limited because we don't have good representation of the lowest ages in the life cycle we don't, we can't really do a confidently good job of predicting what would have been killing them and how that, how that's represented um, within the community itself. And so there, there are some practical constraints to paleodemographic analyses, which is why some of those more robust models are more helpful because they can help proxy for that. Okay. So I won't go crazy with over-interpreting your data. I, I, I like the sensational, but I understand. Let's um, toggle to your other paper, which is similar. Uh, the first author is also a former guest on our show, Taylor Van Doren, albeit she was on the graduate student COVID episode that um, Delaney and Alex hosted. Could you tell us how that came about and, and what roles each of you had? We've been on panels together, um, and I, I know her through uh, Lisa Satinspiel, and I know Lisa through, through Jim Wood. So we have these mutual connections. And, and so um, actually Taylor had read my paper with Sharon and reached out to me via email, so cold email. Um, although we had met before, I think, and said, hey, I really, I really like this. And I'm working on the 1918 flu. And would you be interested in doing a similar analysis, looking at, you know, historical ar archival demographic information and all that? And I said, absolutely. I, I had never done historical demography before. And, oh, my gosh, I got to say, first of all, the data that she has for, the, for her work is so pretty. It's so nice. We're talking not like, like hundreds of people, we're talking thousands of people, which for as a paleodemographer, I wish I could just have thousands uh, in terms of sample size. 
but also things like competing causes of death. And it was just like the amount of information was just staggering and it was such a joy to work with. And she's also just great to work with. I, can't, I don't have enough nice, I have too many nice things to say about Taylor. And I, and I should also note, uh, we did a, an episode with um, Jessica Dimka, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, who also is a student of Lisa Satinspiel. And I think it was with the same uh, data set. So, yeah. yeah. So let's dig into a little bit uh, because you two discussed the importance of integrating biocultural approaches to anthropology with both the demographic and epidemiological transitions. <laughs> so those are things that perhaps people that typically listen to the show might not know about because... There are demographers in HBA, and we would like to welcome more demographers into the HBA. Uh, But could you just kind of briefly tell us what the demographic and epidemiological transition theories are? The demographic transition theory versus, say, the epidemiological one. So there's there's a lot more that's written on this that I think is probably going to be more accurate and more descriptive. So I'll give you, once again, the too long, didn't read version. So the demographic transition theory basically attempts to describe how human demographic vital rates, so births, deaths, um, have changed over time. So we're doing this on a global scale, by the way, so migration doesn't really matter. And so what we see over time is this transition, at least from like the Paleolithic baseline kind of uh, populations where fertility is high and mortality is high and population growth is relatively low. So when both of these things are high, it's, it's not perfectly negating each other. There might be minor perturbations, like minor fluctuations, but generally populations are small, um, maybe with some, you know, small kinship groups, uh, mobile, semi-mobile, non-agrarian populations. So think, again, pre-agriculture. So fertility and mortality is high. And, and then we see this shift where mortality and fertility start to change, where fertility is still high, Um, and mortality starts to decrease. And this is typically associated with the adoption of agriculture. And I I should also point out that while at least 11 different independent centers around the world adopted agriculture about 10,000 years ago, based on the cultivation of natural plant life, as well as uh, domesticated animals, these places didn't do it all at the same time, and nor was that transition immediate. Many times these were gradual transitions, And there are lots of populations that adopted agriculture and then said, nope, not for me. And also there are lots of uh, groups that had agriculture, but also supplemented with foraging. And so when we talk about agricultural versus, say, non-agricultural, it's kind of important to realize that there there are nuances and that it's on a a gradient rather than a, a binarized categorization. So anyway, with this transition, we see mortality go down, but fertility is still high um, with that shift. And so we start to see this natural increase. So populations are starting to grow again, modestly because there are perturbations, you know, farming is risky. And then we have this next transition where again, this natural increase is still happening, but now fertility rates are starting to go down. So think more early modern era, people are having fewer children. Technology is increasing to have vaccines for kids. So we don't have a lot of children dying. And that means that population growth is starting to slow. And now the fourth stage, kind of where we're at, and there's a fifth proposed one, is where we're at now, where fertility rates are low globally and mortality rates are low globally. So population growth is is slowed. It's still kind of happening, but it's slowed. What we're experiencing right now is kind of that population momentum effect. So it still feels like, oh, my gosh, we're growing crazy, Um, but it's actually slowing. That's the demographic transition theory is how populations have grown and changed 
from the Paleolithic period to now. The epidemiological transition, according to Amran uh, 1971, um, and that's also been modified and changed, couples that with talking about what was killing people. So how have diseases and humans and their relationships changed over time? And I have to admit how he named um, his three initial uh, stages of the epidemiological transition are practically biblical in proportion. So the first stage is called the age of pestilence and famine. Like seriously, this should be some kind of like epic scene in a movie with a guy on a horseback, you know, waving a scythe. You know, you get the idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you get the idea. So the age of pestilence and famine describes those early transitions um, where, you know, populations are relatively small, life is brutish and short, but, you know, people are dying of a lot of infectious diseases. It's just death, plague, famine, you know, shite everywhere. You get the idea. So when, once again, most of the people are dying of these infectious diseases. Um, and that includes things like, you know, the Black Death, uh, TB, smallpox, etc. And then there's this next age, the age of receding pandemics. So think industrial revolution. We now have these vaccines. So, so again, people are still dying of infectious diseases, but not necessarily all the ones that we had before. So that categorizes that transition from that kind of early modern period into the industrial age. Um, and then the one that some of us think that we're, we're in, and, and we kind of talk about this and maybe a fourth one, but that seems more futuristic. The third one that we're in is called the age of degenerative and man-made pandemics, or what I would more likely to call like the age of emerging and re-emerging diseases and chronic diseases. So people have things like uh, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, um, obesity, arthritis, all these things that are degenerative and that come from living these long lifespans. Um, but then we also have coupled with that emerging and re-emerging um, epidemics and the fact that we have antibiotic resistance. And so those, those are the transitions. And again, the big caveat here is that when you learn about these transitions, you kind of think that everything has happened in this progressive pattern, happened the same way. And truthfully, it hasn't. There are lots of uh, countries around the world that are still undergoing some of those transitions or more unfortunately dealing with dualistic problems from some of them. So still major acute infectious diseases plus the chronic ones that we see from um, the more recent uh, epidemiological transition. And so it's not a perfect model, but it's one that does a pretty good job of describing um, how demography and epidemiology have worked together mm. within a biocultural framework um, about, about us, about our species. So I love how you guys integrate the biocultural in here and, and and your explanation was perfect, right? So there's a lot of, none of this happens at the same time, which makes it complicated to study. But with this data set, it looks like you have found at least a model for, for approaching that. So lots of pretty pictures uh, and they appear to say something different than the other study. So it appears that in Newfoundland, vis-a-vis -vis the, the 1918 flu pandemic, and I take the word Spanish out and want to castigate the Spanish because we know this was a, a, a pandemic. Mortality for infants and children was even worse than pre-pandemic in this case, and that survivorship for adults improved significantly, but then there were differences in different places. There were pooled ones, and then there was some separate places. So can you tell us a little bit about like how the biocultural helped explore that and, and pull that nuance out? I, I can try it. And again, the caveat here is that, you know, Taylor is really the expert on, on Newfoundland. So if I mess anything up, I'm sure she'll let me know. 
again, like the data set is really extraordinary um, in providing us with these competing causes of death. So, so the thing about kids or about uh, about children rather is we have various categories of diseases that we're discriminating against in in our analyses um, in in the survival curves that I produced. We have tuberculosis, um, which is a major cause of death for people in Newfoundland uh, before um, and after the the 1918 flu. And so that was a big area of interest for for Taylor, certainly, um, and and for me as well, given my background with TB too. Um, But we also have these other causes of death. So we have another category that we loosely call, well, pulmonary infections, so other lung-related diseases. And then the other category, which we could have just called childhood diseases, um, but they can affect people who are a little bit older, of course. But what we saw very quickly is that those are very age specific, certainly in the, the Newfoundland populations that we were looking at, where it's, and I'm just taking a look at my pretty pictures. By the way, those pretty pictures are produced in R um, using ggplots too. So if you ever want to make your own pretty pictures, easy to do. You got to um, pile on R, R Studio on me now, you and I Eric am, and all the R I people. Okay. Yeah, you make pretty pictures with R. That's why my survivor curves are like rainbow colored. I'm like, what? <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, just kind of looking at some of these figures, like the age differences are, are very clear uh, across the periods, but the, the, how they change as those causes of death are competing with each other was really compelling to us. So yeah, c- children were having a hard time because think about it, the, the period that we're looking at is early 20th century. So this is pre uh, mass availability of vaccines for a lot of these diseases and, and something that we point out in the article about the context is that Newfoundland is not thoroughly urbanized. We have one major um, urban center in the Avalon Peninsula that's at St. John's. So St. John's is the main place to go and get medical treatment. There's like one other hospital, I think it's St. Andrews, it's over in the western uh, region. But then the rest of the island, which mainly populated around the coast, it's fairly isolated. So these diseases, they certainly were getting them, but then they were dying from them because getting access to medical care was heterogeneous at best. It was hard to get um, because doctors were not in high supply in these villages and, you know, oftentimes they traveled to them. We also had a group of people called handy women, so basically traveling women who could do medical care. So it was infrequent. And so children were were not doing well. This is fairly reflective of, of the period of a place that's still undergoing transition. So something that we point out in the discussion, because we do see changes after the pandemic, there's actually more inequality, as it turns out, between the different regions in terms of the risk of death, their survivorship. And it turns out that the Avalon Peninsula, so St. John's, um, according to Lisa and Taylor's work previously, was undergoing that second demographic transition. So we are seeing the integration of medicine where mortality is starting to go down, but that's not true for the rest of the island. And so even though Newfoundland is not a very big space, there's a lot of heterogeneity, and that means that there's going to be inequality in terms of health access. And that's something that was also true based on gender, um, as well as socioeconomic status. What was interesting, kind of looking at the pre, during, and after pandemic period for this study was that there, there were differences um, before and after. They were seemingly more after in terms of like, yes, things were getting better, but the, the differences were nuanced. But during the 1918 flu, there was some kind of equalizer um, where TB was still a big problem. But something that Taylor observed was that mortality experiences seemed relatively similar, probably because of the fact that the 1918 flu virus may have had some unique characteristic 
that kind of leveraged the playing field for, for people who were dying. It still was rather selective on that 20 to 40 age group. That's true for 1918 flu, mostly everywhere. But we definitely saw that things like socioeconomic differences, as well as nutritional differences too, because again, St. John's is getting a lot of that um, import, things like milk and meat and things that had uh, provided a well-balanced diet, whereas children, again, are on the coast are not quite getting that same level of nutrition. So having those inequalities because of those things, plus um, malnourishment was going to lead to some of those observations. I think this does a really wonderful job of explaining how you do need to take an integrated biocultural approach to dead people for whose only evidence you have are bones and a few other things, uh, because you have to take into account all the things that are going on in the society at the time, the broader context. So I think that's a really, really wonderful example of how demography, paleo demography, uh, all belong within the HBA too. And so we were so happy to have it. Uh, so we typically, typically we ask about books, which is also hilarious because Sage and I text back and forth about our somewhat ridiculous and embarrassing book choices that maybe we shouldn't share. <laughs> so we are trying to bring back the Human Biology Association talent show, which used to exist years ago, and we're doing gentle poking and nudging. Uh, but if you were to participate in the HBA talent show, what talent would you put on display? So I had to think about this. Um, I would do karaoke because once upon a time, I have won prizes for, for doing karaoke. Yes, I want a met. I want a little trophy, like one of those little plastic trophies. <laughs> well, like even if we don't have a talent show, we're taking you to a karaoke oh, yeah. bar in L.A. So. Yes. <laughs> and what do you? What is? What is your genre of choice? Yeah, your go-to song. Classic divas. I I am like Whitney, Cher. You know, uh, yeah. I can't do Mariah. I don't do that whistle thing. I can't do. I don't know how she does it. Um, but oh yeah, I default um, Whitney Houston for sure. Love her. Um, yes, I, I definitely can do a good share. So yeah, class classic kind of karaoke power songs. Uh, honestly, if I wasn't doing anthropology, I would probably have gone into music. I would just I would be a he heavy metal singer. I would leave <laughs> you know the discipline entirely. <laughs> Wait, I would uh, like to see that too. You need right. to make like an anthropologically themed heavy metal song. Uh, well, it has to do with like it'll have to be some kind of badass name oh god i'll have to think about it oh oh my god okay actually i can tell you what it's called and you might have to bleep me out for this or cut this no no it's okay. okay so i i had i had a student i had a student who uh, was my first ta alex um was just awesome and we both liked heavy metal and we were talking about heavy metal names we were talking about syphilis and I, you know, I was kind of painting this lurid picture of syphilis in the 17th century kind of like think like all those shows from the BBC where everyone's like dying of syphilis and there's brothels everywhere and um, syphilitic whores came up as a title for us. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, that's that's pretty good. Syphilitic I, whores. I love good band names like that, and I just want to throw out one of the one of my dissertation committee members may have been chosen because in addition to to the expertise, we could talk punk rock and Iggy and the Stooges and the kind of music that we like. So so we like to highlight these sides of folks. And um, mm -hmm. I that you did throw me because I did not know about karaoke. And then when you said Cher and Whitney, and I'm like, wait a minute, I thought she was a metalhead. Do you oh, go yeah. for like the 80s rock ballads, like some Pat Benatar as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Pat Benatar, Heart. Oh, I was yeah. going to say, I, how do you feel about Heart? Yes. Thank you. Heart. I, I, of course I have to. 
And I am uh, all for the eighties lady or the eighties ladies of rock. I have a whole playlist uh, that I listen and to. And burning for the ladies of rock. <laughs> Sage, it's anyway, always a pleasure to. This is yeah. so much fun. Now, see, are are you glad you came on? And see, there's no reason to be nervous. It's always great to be with you guys. And I really <laughs> appreciate it so much. So thank you so much for having me. And we have thank editors you. to make us all sound good. We love you so much. And thank you again for coming on. Yeah, I don't know if listeners have noticed, thank but you. we invite people that we like. We want to talk to. We already we already know we like them or we found them charming. So we want to talk to them. Nepotism. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thanks again, Thank you both so much. I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.